Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa aparuta desang amatasa tavara so this is the one pra in which we chanted our Padimok rules or precepts. <clears throat> and after the Padimok, I gave a reflection on space and form. And so this is a this is an encouragement to to notice what is here and now. Like space is always here and now, wherever you are, whatever state of mind, whatever emotions or physical conditions, whatever time of the day or night. But space, we, we don't identify with it personally. We say, you know, I hear some people talking about my space and and my time and that, but that is just a way of talking. But then the Buddha, before he passed away, in this tradition, the, the, this tradition holds that when Ananda asked him about how are we going to, what are we going to do when you physically die, we won't have a teacher anymore. And he said, I leave you the Dhamma and Vinaya. So then I put into context that Dhamma is, has no form to it. Just like space. So when you're contemplating formlessness, because you can perceive space, you look at it, you observe it, there's you know, space in the, in the temples like this. But you don't identify with it, you don't think this space and this temple is mine. So you tend to identify with the forms in space, with the body, the physical form that you, you tend to see as personal possession, personal identity. So in reflecting on Dhamma, notice that what we identify with, why we suffer, why, we, why people commit crimes or do foolish things, why we, there's so much unhappiness, unrest, wars and, and problems, personal, familiar, family problems, social, international problems, pandemics, climate problems, they're all forms in space. 
So this is why, you know, the truth of suffering is, is to be understood because it, we tend to see suffering as my suffering, I suffer. I suffer because I, I doubt, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure what's right or wrong. I want, I've been practicing meditation now and I don't feel I've attained any state. Is the monastic form usable or is it, have I wasted my life? Is it, is it just a waste of time, a pointless way of living or, you know, and doubts come into our minds. This is always due to the thinking process, which is a condition. You know, so thinking arises in consciousness and ceases in consciousness. So consciousness is like space, it has no dimensions. You can't perceive consciousness, you can't see it or hear it or smell it. But the reality is that Consciousness is here and now, and space is in consciousness. So this is why I like to put into context the, the paradigm that we use in this tradition. <clears throat> because when we're just trying to deal with conditioned phenomena, then we get tangled up in our minds because we, we, we aren't sure. Some people say, you should be a monk or a nun the rest of your life and never doubt. And that's advice that some people might give you or you can get enlightened without renunciation, that's possible. And uh, do we need all these rules? And does it need, you know, do we need to change the Vinaya because it so applies to life in India 2,500 years ago. You know, so this is all thinking, isn't it? It's the thinking process. But just like these immeasurables, space and consciousness, and that they're called immeasurables because they have no form. Where's the form of space? You know, you can, where does it end? Where does it begin and end? You can't perceive the, its beginning or its ending. <clears throat> but you can perceive it as a, the reality of here and now. Because that, wherever you are, whatever state of mind you're in, you're in, your physical body is in space. Your mind, mind states are in consciousness. So when you're just trying to improve yourself as a person, you know, like self-improvement or trying to get rid of suffering because you suffer and, you, and you're told you're neurotic or you've got some kind of emotional behavioral problems or there's something wrong with you uh, that you've got to remedy by 
finding out and an analyzing and figuring out just why you you feel lonely or left out or confused or angry all the time. You know, why do I get angry? Why do I have such confused problems in my mind? And so, you know, we want to analyze. But that's just more thinking, which creates more doubt. So then, uh, when I was a summoner, I had this insight. I had to stop thinking, but I didn't know how to do it. And then just trying to suppress thought doesn't work. You know, you can kind of hold your breath for a while and and uh, kind of will yourself not to think, but you can't sustain it. It has no reality in itself. It's just a, a suppression, something, a denial, a resistance to the thought process. But then ask yourself, are your thoughts really what you are? Are you your thoughts? And do you want to spend your lifetime identifying with what you think all the time? Because thoughts are very limited conditions that arise and cease. They emanate from consciousness, but they are impermanent, unsatisfying, and they're not what you are. They're anatta. So recognize that this, what, I, what you can call a paradigm or the form of Buddhism that we respect in this tradition, you know, gives us directional signs. It doesn't give us answers. So the whole, you know, like Lumpo Cha was always emphasizing Bhattibhata or Pawana or meditation practice. But even meditation practice we take very personally. We make it a personal achievement or inability. You know, so even the word Pawana, no matter what, how nice the words might sound, or how meaningful the words are in themselves, it's that even the attachment to the idea of I've got to meditate to get my act together, to get rid of doubt and to find the end of suffering, it's still concepts, words. So pointing to what is where words arise and cease is in awareness. You don't create awareness as, you know, as you, it doesn't need creating or consciousness. You don't create that, you, you create the forms that arise in consciousness and awareness. So greed, hatred, and delusion arise and cease in consciousness.
So pointing to the formless, the immeasurable, the unconditioned. So when we take refuge in Dhamma, you know, I emphasize Dhamma has no form. So they use symbols, you know, the Dhamma Jaka, like the Buddha Rupa behind me, if you look in the in the right hand, uh, there's a Dhamma Jaka, you know, a wheel of Dhamma. So that's the best you can do. It's a symbol for ultimate reality. But it's only that, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's still a form that is impermanent. So when, when, the, when you want to define consciousness and define space, you know, you want to limit space or is there an end to the universe? Where does the universe end? And so we, we ask ourselves these impossible questions. Is there other universes outside this universe that we don't know about? And the space, interest in space travel is now, you know, very much in the minds of many people. Traveling in space to other planets who are in space, the same space that we're in right now. And the sun and moon, the stars which seem in outer space, that which we can visually perceive, You know, they're in space too, the same space as, as you are in right now. And you don't create it, do you? You're not busy sitting here trying to create space to live in, but you, you're just sitting here in space because the body breathes, it sits, stands, walks, lies down, four postures. Throughout the day and night, you're the, the physical form in space all the time, whether it's sitting, standing, walking, lying down, whether it's inhaling or exhaling. These are arising and ceasing conditions. The postures of the body arise and cease in space. Because you can't sit forever or lie down forever, forevermore. It's, you know, the body itself is a, is a condition in space that moves. It walks, it lies down, it stands, it sits throughout a lifetime. So why do we identify with such insubstantial, uncertain conditions, you know? What is it that makes us so identify with what we're not, really? And this is the condition of, you know, social conditioning, cultural conditioning, the, the belief that you are this limited form, that your physical form is, is what you are, and that's it. You know, you, your personality is what you, you really are. You're a, a separate person. You know, because these conditions are 
about separation, about one about extremities, about the best and the worst, about good and bad, heaven and hell. So is space heaven or hell, or consciousness heaven or hell? Or is heaven and hell, they're, co they're concepts we create. You know, we, they're words in the English language that we use for describing happiness and suffering. Happiness and suffering are opposites, aren't they? So the first noble truth that the Buddha used in his first sermon is suffering, not happiness. Even though the unborn, unconditioned, uncreated, unformed, the dimensionless reality that we are doesn't suffer. It's just the forms, the attachment, the blind, ignorant attachment to form that is the problem. So this is a direct, you know, the Four Noble Truths. And next, in two weeks' time, it'll be a Sala Puja. When the, this is the day that we celebrate the Buddha's first sermon after enlightenment. So during this Pansa, this year, you know, see, this is an opportunity with the forms that we're using, like the monastic forms, the Buddha rupas, the Dhammajaka symbols, the robes that we wear, are they personal or, you know, we can like them or, you know, we have, they make beautiful Buddha rupas and some Buddha rupas I've seen are ugly and some are made out of plastic and others made out of jade and or marble or brass or gold even you know these are and, and so that we we dwell on the the you know the the quality of the buddha rupa whether it's it we like it personally and that's a personal choice we make whether you like the Buddha Rupa or you don't like it is a, is a creation of your own mind. But when you stop creating things, proliferating about things, which is all takes words, because that's what words do, they proliferate about whether you they, this is good, bad, right or wrong, should I stay or leave, or am I wasting my life, or should I dedicate my life to the Dhamma, or what should I do, is these are all creations that we make in conscious consciousness that we tend to identify with. So doubt is is the is a don't see it as a problem, as something that you should believe in everything we say and do here, because we're telling you this is the right way. 
It's not, not a kind of cult in which we demand obedience and, and conformity in our thoughts. The conformity is strictly a convention outward in action and speech. And that's all that Vinaya amounts to is conformity in action and speech. But in Pavana, meditation, there's no conformity to it. You know, what do you conform to? You know, believing in in Buddha Dhamma Sangha because you were told they're right, or using these very words, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, to investigate the reality of here and now. So I found in my life, this will be my 55th pansa this year, so that in our concepts of time, that's quite a long time. And, uh, you know, you look back and, you know, you appreciate the, the traditional form that I adopted because in terms of action and speech, it's kept me from doing a lot of foolish things. that on a personal level, I would like to do. Or habitual habit, habit patterns that I developed from childhood, adolescence and youth so far, you know, they, they don't just fade away and die out. But life is the world that we believe is external. We think of the world as out there. Planet Earth is the world. The UK is the world we live in. These are all constructions of thoughts, concepts. They're objects of the mind. They're not ultimate reality. So problems are like with Brexit, European Union. These are human created problems. These are not Dhamma problems. because we identify with being British and then we develop a sense of, of wanting to protect that which is pure and British is all a creation of the mind. It's not reality. I sometimes try to like to reflect what was Amaravati like, or this place in that we built this monastery, we call Amaravati, what it was like 2,560 years ago. Who was living here? You know, just forests, or were there villages, people? You know, because now we identify this area, this property, as this is, belongs to us, the English Sangha Trust, it's the Sangha's. Uh, these are all creations, limited conditions we create through cultural conditioning, social conditioning, through our a tradition of identifying even the robes as some kind of personal ownership or our alms bowl as personal 
possession. Or our shelter is our personal residence. Everything becomes personal in space, in consciousness. And so this is the cause of suffering, this, this attachment to the unstable un, and which is changing and is not really belong to anybody. There's no ownership, no doer. These are just illusions of, that we create in our minds out of habit, and you don't tend, even do it intentionally. Habitual patterns of behavior developed from early childhood to the present moment. I've always found doubt a liberating reality. Because, you know, my karmic tendencies are to doubt. I'm a skeptic, I have a skeptical character. And the other day I phoned my sister, and she's 89 years old now, and she lives in Washington State, in the west coast of the United States, which has undergone, you know, a terrible heat wave. And I was very concerned about her because she's very old and she's not that healthy. And she's a Roman Catholic. And we were brought up as kind of Anglo-Catholics as a, in the Anglican Church or Episcopal Church in America. They kind of, there's this group that identify with being Anglo-Catholic. So the whole idea of being Catholic has been instilled in us since we were small children. That's conditioning, isn't it? How many people here would know what an Anglo-Catholic is? or care, one way or the other. But when this is instilled in your early childhood, this becomes a, a strong identity. And then the Anglo-Catholic, the Anglican Church became too liberal. They started ordaining women as priests. And my family in America were very hold, held to the old tradition and became, and left the Anglican Church joined the Catholic Church, Roman Catholic Church, because they won't ordain women as priests. So that problem was solved by changing sects, you know, but by going to another tradition that, that is more suitable to your thinking process. So that's one way to deal with, with suffering, is to distract yourself from it not investigate or look into what you're attached to and understand it, understand the causes of suffering. You just think if you change your situation, you know, if you go to another place, another monastery, or another tradition, or become a lay person, 
because you can practice mindfulness as well, just as well as a lay person. You know, so these are, you know, uh, options like changing from being Anglo-Catholic to Roman Catholic. It's a distraction, isn't it? Not facing what is really important is the suffering of our attachment to the forms, to the traditions, to our own sense of right and wrong. Because right and wrong arise and cease in consciousness. They're not absolutes. There's no absolute right. And many of us in the Sangha, you know, we tend to absolute righteousness. That this particular tradition is absolutely right. And then because it's that varies from Tibetan Buddhism or Mahayana Buddhism or Zen Buddhism, then we, we tend to see other forms of Buddhism as wrong or not as right as we are. So when we investigate righteousness, what do we find out? The sense of being right arises and ceases in consciousness. You can't be right 24 hours a day and be attached to the sense of we're right and others are wrong or I'm right and you're wrong. I mean, that comes up, arises when the conditions allow it to. So when somebody challenges our tradition, you know, the conditions for doubt arise. And we can become very defensive, very aggressive about it. Quote Lumpur Cha, quote the suttas, quote the Vinaya, and we've got all kinds of backup to prove that we're right. Because it says so, says so in the scriptures, because Lumpur Cha said this, or Ajahn Sumedho said this, so it must, you know, and then we're quoting sages or Confucius, or Socrates, or Plato, or some, or the Pope, or Saint Francis, or the Archbishop of Canterbury. <laughs> you always, there's always, you know, one refers to more words, more conditions to, to justify one's sense of being right. And we don't investigate this. So notice that this, this form of the Four Noble Truths is uh, with suffering as the first noble truth, that it's taking what nobody wants. We don't want suffering. You know, so life can be just a search for happiness. You know, we want lot, make lots of money to feel secure in our lives. If we don't have any money and we don't have a job, that's the ultimate in insecurity. Who am I? I'm nobody. I'm a homeless, unwanted person. I, don't, I can't buy anything. I can't have no place to live. People look down on me. Nobody respects the homeless. 
I'm no good, I've wasted my life. It's all creation of the mind. And that because you identify with, with, you know, happiness with making lots of money, having a good job, being a success, having a good relationship, owning your own home, even with all these at their very best, there's still suffering to face. Even if we can, you know, have this fortunate conditions arise in our life, is that what we really want ultimately? You know, it, it, it brings a kind of momentary happiness. And so, you know, you feel secure at last because you've got a lot of money in the bank, you paid all your debts, you have a happy relationship, you're respected in the society, but still suffering exists even for those with good fortune. So it's not about being homeless and unwanted and unloved, but about the very nature of phenomena that we, out of ignorance, attach to, out of, you know, out of habit. If there are just habit patterns, it's not like a personal defect. And that's something wrong with you, it's just the way you've been conditioned to see yourself always in the terms of, of uh, a cultural conditioning, religious conditioning, social conditioning. But these, not to even criticize conditioning, because this, this is about the conditioned realm, these forms that we identify with are conditions. So how can we get beyond the conditioning? You know, are we just stuck with, with the body, with the mental habits we have, with the emotions that we've developed from early childhood, with, with our ideals and preferences and prejudices and biases and, and fears? Is that, you know, are we just resign ourselves to, to suffering as just uh, being born as suffering, getting old is suffering, getting sick is suffering, death is suffering. But old birth, old age, sickness and death are, is the form, the formed realm. The forms arise and cease, they're, they're impermanent, that's their nature. They're supposed to be impermanent, they can't be any other way whether it's physical, mental, emotional. So then ask yourself, why do I attach to them? And of course, you don't need to know why. This attachment to forms is like this. So this is where pavana, when we use this word meditation, or developing the path, the way of liberation or freedom from delusion is by understanding delusion, not by getting rid of it. So suffering is a delusion, meaning it's, 
it's impermanent, unsatisfactory and not self. So the first noble truth is about delusion. There is delusion. You can use it instead of suffering or dukkha. There is delusion and it's to be understood. You know, the second aspect to the first noble truth is to understand suffering, to understand delusion, to understand doubt, to understand selfishness, to understand fear, to understand hope, to understand the desire for happiness, to understand the wanting to get rid of suffering and, and all that. So they, this is to understand means that we don't choose between right and wrong anymore in terms of bhavana, but regard right and wrong as they arise, right, feeling right, and this is right, is a condition that changes wrong is the same way. So you learn from both, right and wrong. So that's why you can't take precepts to always be right, mentally. You know, it's impossible. We do have uh, fairly limited control over action and speech. So that's the, that's the sila, the moral precepts. There's a form to reflect from, not to attach to and identify with. So forms, and nothing wrong with them, you know, we're not saying the world is bad and we should get rid of it, or just endlessly criticize uh, materialism or the worldly society or the British or the European Union or the United States, or China, you know, you can always find anything wrong with any condition. The critical mind, you know, is very good at spotting the defects in the temple here. And if you don't like the Buddha Rupa, you know, whenever you see it, you don't like it, I won't look at it. Some people feel it's too big and it dominates the room. And so, you know, that's a thinking process, isn't it? And then purists, the Buddha never had any Buddha rupas. You know, so, you know, we're the pure Dhamma practitioners. We don't believe in, in Buddha rupas or Dhamma jakas or these kind of symbols. We go straight to the heart of the matter is another form of conceit, isn't it? Ours is the direct path, ours is the pure, the, the right way. These, even the, the thought that ours is the right way is another thought. Or identifying with stream entry or not stream entry. You think, I'm, I, don't, I haven't attained stream entry. is the same as I have attained stream entry. It's words. Because you're thinking of it, stream entry as some kind of personal lack of ability or ability or achievement. And it's not an achievement. 
a personality cannot attain stream entry because personalities are conditioned. They're empty phenomena. Your personality, no matter what you think of it, is, is a phenomenon that arises and ceases in consciousness. So in getting to the source, you know, is mindfulness, awareness. So the first noble truth is, you know, is first, it's in the scriptures. So we respect that, you know, we find the scriptures interesting. We take an interest in them. But there's still words, when you look at them in a book, you know, they, they come from something, you know, not, that's not even breathing or feeling, like the Tripitaka doesn't feel heat or cold pleasure or pain. But it has the teachings of the Lord Buddha in, in, the, in, the, in the scriptures. So that's the first aspect, is a scripture, scriptural reference, not as a position to take on life, but as a, it's a point to understand suffering. And how do you understand it? Not by analyzing it, you know, trying to figure out why I suffer, why anyone in the Sangha should suffer. You know, we could spend time, you know, trying to make the perfect conditions possible for non-suffering in the, at Amaravati. But no matter how well-intentioned we might be, if we're not understanding suffering, even under the most auspicious conditions that you can imagine or create in your mind for meditation, it's still, it's still not understanding. So to understand suffering is to observe it. And so we have this Puto practice, the Buddha's name, Buddha, awaken to suffering, it's like this. So notice, as I, I've given out these little pins saying it's like this, this constant reference to, to this sentence, you know, can be sound meaningless to many people because what does it mean? You know, I, it's like this, what does it mean? and you want to figure out what it means, you're still using your intellect, your thinking mind, to figure out the way it is. When it, all it is is a suggestion, a way of accepting suffering is like this. This feeling of doubt is like this. Feeling of insecurity is like this. And notice it's, it's, not saying, it's not judging doubt or insecurity, saying if you really had faith, you wouldn't doubt, you wouldn't suffer. Because that doesn't work. It isn't about believing the scriptural teachings, but using them for getting to the source, which is conscious awareness here and now, timeless, it's timeless. 
It's Dhamma here and now. So then, what is Dhamma? Dhamma is like this. And you kind of open yourself, not trying to, and you're just seeing the inability to, to define Dhamma with words. Consciousness is like this. Can you define it? You know, can you show me consciousness? Can you show yourself consciousness? You know, these are like questions to ask. Can you, can you take consciousness and put it in your hand and show me? And then I'll believe, you know, that there is consciousness. You won't find consciousness as an object. So when we talk about awareness, consciousness, mindfulness, it's here and now, but what you're attached to can be anything, you know, whatever feeling, physical, emotional, mental state that, that you're feeling at this time is like this. And it's, it's not judgment, it's not a way of judging it that you should feel another way or get rid of it, what you're feeling. But it's a acceptance of the feeling as it arises and ceases. Because your real refuge is in awareness, not in what you're feeling, because the feeling, whatever you're feeling, physically or mentally, emotionally, is changing. So Bhutto means to witness change. So you learn from everything, you know, not just the happy moments, the successes and concentration, the, the the insights that you might receive, but to the doubt is also an insight. It's like this, and you you stop trying to define it or get rid of it, or just make arbitrary decisions about it. You know, just to get rid of it, do one thing or another, is kind of resigning oneself, you know, but it's still highly personal. This resignation to fate, to one's karma, is, is still a personal conditioning. So letting go, it's like this, isn't about, it's not personal anymore, it's not making it you know, if it becomes personal, then it, you make a judgment about, I still suffer from doubt, I'm not a stream enterer. That's the obstruction to stream entry. I've been a monk or a nun for years now, and I'm not a stream enterer. And because, you know, you have this doubt about stream entry. But what is stream entry? You know, it's another sentence, there is stream entry. A sodapana. That sounds nice to the ego, doesn't it? To, to be able to say you're a sodapana. I meet monks, I meet lay people who say they're sodapanas with great pride. So, <laughs> and you kind of Realize that they're not sodapanas. 
when you when when your ego claims stream entry. But listen to if you think you're a sotapanna, listen to to it. You know, if you believe you're a sotapanna as a person, can you be a sotapanna all the time as a person? Is that possible to constantly be a sotapanna twenty four seven? Because it's still conceptual, isn't it? And Sakyaditi, Silapattabharamasa, Vichikicha, the three obstructions to stream entry. But the same applies to I'm not a Sotapanna, because that's very personal. You know, so this is where you trust your awareness. I'm not a Sotapanna, I can't meditate. I don't have samadhi. I don't have enough samadhi. I should get at least upachara samadhi, but I'm not sure whether I even have upachara samadhi. And abundance samadhi sounds really nice. I'd like to get that, but I'm not anywhere near that. This is all conceptual proliferation. In Pali, they call it papancha. It's all about me and mine and my what I am and what I am not are both ego or sakyaditi. So this is why during this coming pansa, because a pansa is a period of time where where this special emphasis on Pawana is highly encouraged. So, you know, I encourage you to have the, have the courage to investigate reality as you experience it. And like doubt itself, it really leaves consciousness without a thought. You know, when, when you ask yourself a question, this, the thinking process stops momentarily. Am I a sotapanna? And then there's question, doubt. Am I, you know, am I a 55 pansas? 56, because I was a samanera for one year. You know, so I spent 56 years and practicing some, you know, meditation of some kind. Am I a stream enterer? Am I a once-returner? Maybe I'm a once-returner and I don't recognize it. Or am I a non-returner? I've developed a silent, my mind's very silent, so I must be a non-returner. And so in this way, you know, what am I doing? It's, this makes it very personal, like this form here, Ajahn Sameto, has attained something as a person. But that's not Dhamma, that's not reality. Because the person is a habit.
That's why, you know, when you, when you judge yourself with your personal habits of judging, you know, whether you're a good person or not so good person, whether you're right or wrong or enlightened or not enlightened, it's, it's, it's all proliferation, conceptually, concepts proliferating. And that you can be aware of. You can be aware of thinking. You can be aware of doubt, of insecurity, of instability. So nothing is really an abstraction. Sakyaditi Thilabhattabharamasa are called abstractions to the path. And that's just the conventional form. Remember, it's still words. It's, it's pointing in direction. It's not absolute, absolutely right in terms of, of the way we interpret Pali scriptures or the Buddha's teachings. Because the, you know, the Buddha really, you know, is pure conscious awareness here and now. Bhutto isn't about a sage who lived and taught the Dhamma, realized the Dhamma 2,560 years ago. That's convention. But when we take refuge in Buddha, it's an awareness. And it's aware of the way things are, the changing conditions of, of, the, of the body, of the emotions, of the feelings, pleasure and pain, sickness, health, youth, old age, being male or female, being a monk or a nun, being a Theravadan Buddhist, are all conditions but not absolutes. So then, you know, we, you know, I ask myself, what, am, what is my refuge in, in Dhamma? Is in this awareness, which I trust. Trust in awareness. So, you know, it's the questions of am I a sotapanna, a steam enter, or arahan, or whatever. Don't think those thoughts have never arisen in my mind, that question. But you begin to see through those, you know, that they're, they're not identities to a, that you attain and attach to. It's impossible to become a stream enter as a person. So that's why to recognize Sakyaditi, Silabhattabharamasa, Wichikecha. Sakyaditi is, is like the ego, the strong identity we have with our form, with our appearance, with our bodies. Silabhattabharamasa, our conventional conditioning, social conditioning, cultural conditioning. And doubt, our thinking habits, our belief. We have to define, we have to describe. We want to define Dhamma. We want to describe consciousness. We want to 
prove that there is such a thing as consciousness when the proof is always here and now. It's like this. You don't have to find it. It's not something you lack that you've got to get, but awaken to. So like Bhutto, Buddha, means awakening. Or suddenly realizing you're not what you think or the limitations of your conditioning. You're not the limitations, your ego, your personality uh, that you identify with. You're not the limitation of a physical form because these limitations are unsatisfactory. You know, no matter how good-looking one might be or how intelligent one might be, how much money one has, how fortunate one is, this, these, these conditions are changing, they're unstable, uncertain. And that's the way they're supposed to be. So we, we appreciate phenomena, as a, as a way of reflecting on it, not to attach to it anymore, to let go of phenomena doesn't mean we get rid of it. But we, we uh, are the puto, the re observer of it, the witness too, it, it does change. So that's its nature, as the Buddha clearly pointed out. And if you can find a phenomena, a phenomenon that never changes, good luck. In fact, when, when I was a Samanera, I made that koan up. And before I met Lung Po Cha, I said, is there a condition that never changes? Because the Buddha said all conditions are impermanent. And so, you know, and I believed in the teaching of the Buddha first before investigating it. So then I thought, is there, you know, and I did investigate through, in, through the contemplation of impermanence and Nietzsche. And it didn't take long, even before I had a teacher to, to recognize impermanence, just in mental states or the changing of the seasons or time of day and night. And what I see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, my emotions, my habits, you know, rise and cease. So that was fairly clear, you know, just by, because, you know, as a layman, I never contemplated impermanence. It was not part of my religious conditioning, my cultural conditioning. Nobody ever mentioned to me how impermanent everything is. So, you know, the cultural conditioning of an American is about finding permanence, permanent happiness. And and same with Christianity. It was the kind of Christianity I grew up with. It was about being happy, being one with the Lord and being happy forevermore, one with God. And so I interpreted that in, from the personal identity level because I was, didn't know any other way to see God, the concept of God, other than as some kind of person, 
superior to me. Because that's how the thinking mind works. God is better than I am, because I was told that. God is absolutely right. And if you don't believe that, you're wrong. So that's the cultural, religious, social conditioning that we can observe. It's not, not that it's bad. Some of it was very good. I had very good kind of moral examples of behavior from my parents and so forth. So, you know, it wasn't like a complete waste or to, to criticize them, but to see the limitation that attachment to right, to a form, that blind attachment without investigating what attachment is, is always, the result of it is always suffering because there's always something wrong. The, the Anglican Church ordains women and that's, that's wrong according to the way I was conditioned. So, so that's, you know, then, then, you know, you don't question wrong or the tradition, you just operate from the tradition that you've identified with. And you can't see beyond it. So, in this tradition, it's not to be attached to it, but to use it. To see that the, the forms, the conditions, the phenomena, that we identify with are not what we are, they, they're impermanent. So as a Samanera, just investigating impermanence was quite a revelation. I was 31 years old at the time, so I'd lived long enough, but had no idea of that concept of Sapay Sankarani Cha. till I became acquainted with Theravada Buddhism and the Four Noble Truths. So this was, in, in Anichang, was quite a revelation, an insight. And then dukkha, suffering, unsatisfactory. You know, so dukkha is, you know, have to, it has many translations, suffering or, and these all have a certain quality to them, whether it's like some people use stress or unsatisfactoriness or, you know, but it's always, you know, we know what suffering or wanting something we don't have or not wanting things to be the way they are, are like. Wanting sensual happiness to have beautiful things around us all the time to look at and pleasant sounds, you know, the gamadanha, the desire for sense pleasures is quite obvious. So that, you know, the, that we cling to conditioned phenomena, expecting it to satisfy us in some constant way. But they don't. We suddenly realize that these flowers in front of me are beautiful right now. But in a few days, they're not going to be so beautiful because their nature is to change. And they're supposed to do that. So that, that is the way phenomena 
operates. It has a beginning, it has a middle, and an end. And the witness, the puto, is aware of the arising, the abidance, the end of a condition, whether it's doubt, whether it's greed, any form of greed, hatred, anger, fear, jealousy, confusion, worry, anxiety. You know, these are all grist for the mill. They're all conditions that we begin to see through rather and investigate rather than get rid of or condemn and try to become perfect according to some ideal that you have of what an arahant should be. So the arahant is, you know, in terms of of the word is perfection. But as a personal identity, it doesn't fit. It doesn't, person, you know, the person is not an arahant. So there is perfection, it's Dhamma here and now, and it's learning to trust in that awareness, timeless awareness here and now that you realize the path, not just believe that there is a path, but you have insight. Jnana dasana means profound insight, not intellectual understanding. You know, so you can believe in there is a path, there is a once-returner, non-returner, arahant, and then we wonder, is there anyone here in the Amaravati Sangha that is a stream enter or and so forth? Or in Thailand, do they still have arahants in Thailand? Was Lung Po Cho an arahant? Was Lung Tabua an arahant? Was Puta Tat an arahant? What are we doing? You know, we're looking outward toward conditions. Because right now, Lung Po Cha is a memory, is a perception that arises and ceases in consciousness. The Buddha of 2,560 years ago is a, is a memory, is a perception in consciousness. But what isn't a perception, which you can't perceive at this very moment, is consciousness. You can perceive space. Just look, you know, with the eyes, visual space and the forms in space. But consciousness, you can't perceive because that's what you are. But not as a person. So this, this we call Sangha, one who practices in the right way. So the forms here, the traditional forms, the monks, the nuns, the Anagarikas and so forth are forms only, not, and they have each separate personalities, even though, you know, the outward exterior, the form is, is conventional. The personalities are all different. 
So we can be aware of the different forms in space, but be aware of the space. Consciousness here and now, space here and now, don't arise and cease, so they're always available. You know, they're not something you create or, de or need and depend on conditions arising that are suitable for realization. It's just realizing them. Space is like this. And it leaves you, when, when I do this, even now, space is like this. It doesn't, I don't have any thoughts about it. It just leaves the thinking mind, stops the mind from thinking, because I can't describe space. But I'm aware of it. There's awareness. And consciousness, I know I'm conscious right now, but as a person, is it in my brain? Is it about the brain, the organ of the brain that's conscious? Is, is the brain the conscious entity that we, you know, when we lose our memories, are we lacking in consciousness? So all forms are in consciousness, whether they're good, bad, whether they're alert geniuses with Nobel Prizes to their name or idiots, morons, people have lost their memory, don't know who they are. Consciousness is not dependent upon the brain. So the brain is dependent upon consciousness. Its brain is a condition in consciousness. So this relationship of form to space, to vinya to dhamma, is is these are the these are conditions which help us to to awaken to reality, to dhamma, to know this. To, so it's budgetang vaitida pavinya to know it by ourselves. You know, not through somebody telling you or me telling you what the dhamma is, and you believe me or disbelieve me or doubt what I'm saying, but it's through bhajatang, which is to be re realized, the reality of now individually by wisdom. And if you believe you're a person without wisdom, that's another belief. Because wisdom is not personal. It's not about being a monk for 55 years, that I'm wiser than you. Wisdom of reality is here and now available to all of us. So I offer this as a reflection. <laughs>